reading of God's Word, and the reading of God's Word is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you in fear and trembling before your word, knowing that it is true, knowing that it divides between soul and spirit and, and joint and marrow, and that it is, it is active and causes us to... Um, to, to be exposed of our sin and to instead cling to you and to be built up in the faith. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would accomplish your, all your purposes through it, and that your church would be built up and strengthened. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And be seated. So our topic this morning is the lawful use of, of the law. Now, since the earliest times, there's been confusion amongst Christians regarding the use of the law. Are we free from the law now because we're under grace? Or does our keeping our salvation require us to be continually obedient to the law. And it's these two positions that have been perennially manifest in the church. The, the one um, position we call the, the antinomian position, antinomianism just means no law, um, which would state that the law has no place in the Christian life because now we, we under grace. And because of that, there's now no need to, to repent of our sins, to confess our sins, because, hey, we are already forgiven. We can carry on sinning because grace abounds, as Romans 6, 1 um, uh, mentions. Um, so an example today of, of this 
belief would be what we call the hyper grace movement. It's very prevalent in the up, churches in the Upper Highway area. Um, it's characterized by figures like Joseph Prince. You see his books often in, in the Christian bookstores. Um, somebody like him is, is a hyper grace guy and essentially an, an antinomian. On the other hand, we've got legalism. Okay? And, and legalism would state that we've got to continue to obey the law in order that we be saved. So our salvation is based on, on, on law keeping. And an example of legalism in Jesus' day were, were the Pharisees. Um, and the, the tendency of, of the legalists is then to go beyond Scripture as well, to add a whole lot of rules um, upon the Word of God that, that um, are not in here. Um, so an example of modern-day legalism is a belief that you, know, you, you have to be a good person in order to, to go to heaven. I mean, that's kind of that, you know, it's a common understanding of what Christianity is, unfortunately. Essentially, a salvation by works. It also manifests in, in another way in that the tendency of legalism is, is then to, to forbid, to place um, uh, prohibitions on Christians that go beyond Scripture, like the, the, you know, the drinking of alcohol or, or binding conscience, binding people's consciences on matters that are not explicitly um, commanded in Scripture. So in our passage this morning, Paul charges Timothy to deal with false teachers in the church. And these false teachers were causing confusion in the church regarding the law. So they were this eclectic mixture of legalists and antinomians teaching, it misunderstood the role of, of the law and hence they were causing confusion. So in response to this, Paul shows us here in, in these verses how the law is to be correctly used in the Christian life. So what we're going to see from this text is that because the goal of our faith is love, the purpose of the law then is to keep us from sin and drive us to cling to Christ. So let's get straight into it here from verse 3, first section, look at it as the false teachers. So from verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So we saw last week in, in the introductory sermon to this series is that Paul writes this letter to Timothy while he's in Macedonia on one of his missionary trips, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, the recipient here, um, who's an elder in the church here in Ephesus, where this context is, is taking place. And he's the young man whom, to whom Paul has been mentoring for, for some time. And so one of the issues that Timothy has been struggling with in um, the church at Ephesus is false teachers. And so Paul instructs Timothy here um, that to, to call out these false teachers who are, are teaching a different doctrine, as the text says. So the Greek word that is used here for, for different doctrine is where we get the, the English word heterodoxy. Okay, and what is the meaning of, of heterodoxy? Well, it's the opposite of orthodoxy. It's a deviation from 
orthodoxy. And what is orthodoxy? Well, orthodoxy is the accepted belief. It's the it's correct teaching or, or, or doctrine. And so Paul is calling out this heterodoxy or different doctrine here. And, and the fact that he's calling it out, well, it's showing us something very interesting. It's showing us that already in the early 60s AD, in the first century, the church had an established rule of faith. In other words, the church had an established body of correct doctrine that was aligned to the truth of the gospel. There are many who would say, oh no, the um, Christian teaching evolved many hundreds of years after the New Testament. Sure, there are many theologians that came after um, the New Testament that were written. There's still people who write theology today, but that's not the point. They're arguing that orthodoxy as we know it was still in flux way you know, in, into um, church history. And that's simply not true. Okay? Sound doctrine and orthodoxy was established. There was an agreed body of gospel truth before the end of the first century. And that's clear as we read the New Testament. We even see it in, in Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Um, Paul's writing concerning the qualification of elders. And he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So it's clear here. There's an established understanding of what sound doctrine is um, and the trustworthy word. It, it, is, it is an established thing already in, in the New Testament church. So then false teachers, the way false teachers are exposed then is through the, the nature of their teaching, which is, deviates from orthodoxy. Anything that deviates from this established body of truth is wandering into heterodoxy, is wandering into heresy, basically. And so one of the important jobs of elders in the church is to confront and rebuke these false teachers. And you see it here in, in verse 3 and in Titus 1, verse 9. And I know that uh, this can often seem like anathema in today's church, especially in, you know, we've been influenced by a seeker-sensitive movement. We don't want to say anything controversial from the pulpit. We want to, you know, just speak about living your best life now and, and all that. Um, but to do that is to be profoundly unscriptural. Because throughout the New Testament, it's not just here in 1 Timothy, Paul calls out false teachers and false teaching. He, he names and shames them. He calls them out by name. Why? And if he does it, well, it, it, we are called to do it as well. Why is this? Why is false calling out and confronting false teaching and heresy um, so important for us to do? Well, the reality is that false teaching damages people. It ensnares our souls into sin. Okay, it leads people into, into bondage. You've got to understand, people's souls are at stake when false teaching runs rampant in the church. So to confront and deal with false teachers is 
an important way in which pastors are to protect and love and care for their people. That is what a shepherd does. The function of the shepherd is to chase the wolves away. And that's what we got to, that, that is what this is essentially doing. False teachers are wolves. They are not there to build up the church. They are there to destroy and to wreak havoc in the church. So it's the job of the pastor, it's the job of the shepherd to get his staff out and to go and chase the wolves away, expose the false teaching. Um, that is a part of, uh, of, of, of our calling. We should take it seriously. So what then was the nature of this false teaching that had arisen in, in Timothy's church? Well, let's look at verses 4 to 7 because it sheds some light on this. There's not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what we can, can garner, can glean from this, these couple of verses is that these false teachers were misusing the law. And you see that explicitly in, in verse 7 where it says they, they assume to teach the law. They assume to even call themselves teachers of the law. But actually, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they, are, they are misusing the law, rather. And how are they misusing the law? Well, so from the text we can see they, they are adding things to the law, which is a tendency of, of legalism. They, they, they um, also are, are, are teaching, on the other hand, that the law is not, not relevant anymore, and that's a tendency of, of antinomians. So in verse 4, you can see they, false teachers are teaching myths. Okay, that's made-up stuff. The Bible is not mythology, it's truth. Um, they are teaching, getting carried away with endless genealogies. So pulling genealogies out from the scripture, because we are there are genealogies in there. But then being getting caught up in the nitty-gritty of them and making a big deal about certain things that aren't evident in scripture. So they're confusing people. They're promoting speculation um, about these things which are unnecessary. So they go beyond the teaching of Scripture, and that's also a trait of, of mystics, which is related to, you know, to, to the teaching of myths here. Um, they wander into vain discussion, confusing uh, people through speculating about things that the Bible doesn't explicitly deal with. Now, Paul contrasts these false teachers with those who teach sound doctrine, those who teach orthodoxy, those who correctly divide the word of, of truth. And in verse 5, it says, instead of bringing people into confusion and bondage and strife and sin, which that's all the fruit of, of, of false teaching, instead the aim or the Greek word that is used there is telos, which is the goal of the teaching, the end point of of sound doctrine is love, which comes from a pure heart. 
a good conscience and sincere faith. So what it's saying is that sound doctrine leads to, should lead to, a love for God and a love for one another. It's Romans 13, 10 says, love fulfills the law. So it brings us to our second point, and that is the lawful use of, of the law. From verses 8 to 11. So let's just first look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So it's clear from this text is that the word of God, Paul tells us that the law is good. Hey, Romans 7 verse 12 also declares the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So this is now contra the antinomians. Okay, this is saying it's actually it's simply untrue that the law itself is bad and not applicable to Christians. The law indeed is good. Yet the goodness of the law is qualified by its proper use. And in other words, the law can be bad if it's misused. And that's precisely what these false teachers have been doing. They have been misusing the law. So how is the law then to be used properly? Well, verses 9 to 11 continue. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So we see in verse 9 is that the law is not just, is not for those who are just. Okay, there's no need for the law if you're righteous and if you perfectly obey. You can... You don't need the law if, if, if that's you. Well, I mean, Paul is being rhetorical here. Of course, there is no one who is perfectly righteous except one. We will get to it at the end. But instead, the law is for those who break the law. It's for the disobedient, for the, the sinners. And hello, well, that's us. So what it's saying, well, the law is for us. It is applicable for us is absolutely relevant for the Christian. And the purpose of the law then, as we see now, is that the first purpose of the law is that it is to reveal our sin. And that's exactly why Romans 7 verse 7 says, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. So the law shows up our poverty shows up the reality, the, 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 the true state of our hearts. And thus, it should then point us to the need for a savior from our sins. Now, in the remainder of this text, Paul then is, demonstrates this truth vividly by, if you haven't noticed it yet, he makes reference to the Ten Commandments. 
Yeah, which at its heart, the Ten Commandments is a summary of the law of Moses. So why does he, why are the Ten Commandments brought in here? Okay, I'll demonstrate very quickly, very shortly, how they are, they are there. Well, the Ten Commandments is using the Ten Commandments in his demonstration here, in his argument, to show that the moral law is still binding upon Christians today in its entirety. Okay, obviously, ceremonial and civil laws, those have been fulfilled in Christ. That's regarding this animal sacrifices and the laws pertaining to Israel. Not going to get into that this sermon. It's just too much. But for our purposes of this sermon, the moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments, the laws concerning um, human behavior towards each other and to God are still binding for us today. So to be clear, we are not saved by our observance to the law. We are saved instead by trusting in Christ's obedience to the law on our behalf. Okay, we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But joyful obedience from the law flows from believing the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we are deceived if we, can carry, if we think we can carry on making a practice of sin after we have received Christ. So the Ten Commandments, how do we see them here? Well, verse 9 talks about the ungodly and sinners. Essentially, this is those who have broken the first commandment. The first commandment commands us to worship no other gods but Yahweh, but but the Lord. And it's it's this, the breaking of of the first commandment, which is really at the root of all sin. Idolatry lies at the root of of, 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 of all sin and un, the ungodly and sinners we, we, when we are ungodly and we sin when we substitute true worship with false worship when we fail to worship God with all our hearts and when the things of this world the things of the creation become more attractive than God himself invariably we fall into Idolatry, when we worship the creation over the creator, as Romans 1.25 says. So the first commandment, the breakers of the first commandment are referred to as the ungodly and sinners. Then the text goes on to talk about the unholy and profane. Now this is describing those who break the second, third, and fourth commandments. Those who firstly profane the name of the Lord by worshiping Images, even images of um, God, okay? That's what the second commandment forbids. Uh, It also includes the breakers of the third commandment, those who blaspheme the name of the Lord, who take the name of the Lord in vain. And it's describing those who do not observe the Sabbath day to keep it a holy rest and to the Lord, and, and the breakers of these three commandments are described as unholy and profane. We are unholy and profane when we do these things, when we don't observe this, the Sabbath day as we've commanded to do, when we, when we recklessly use the name of the Lord, and when we um, uh, depict God in, uh, through images. It, these are unholy and profane things to do. Okay, then the verse carries on and it describes those who strike their mothers and fathers. Okay, it's very simple there. It's a clear reference to the, the, those who break the fifth commandment, those who do not honor their parents. But, I mean, to strike your mother or father, that is, 
you know, a heinous thing to do. That, that's a, the height of, of dishonoring them. Okay? And the commandment is to honor them. So it's the exact opposite of um, the, the, the fifth commandment. And then, yeah, the next is, is very clear as well. Murderers, clearly the breakers of the sixth commandment. And then we get to the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. Now, that's clearly a reference to the seventh commandment. Um, don't commit adultery. And if you remember, when we looked at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we, we went through all the commandments. We went through this. And what we see is when the Bible speaks about adultery, it, it means it's a broad term, not just for you know, cheating on your spouse. It's the broad term which includes all uh, all sexual immorality. I think it's worth pausing here because this is a huge issue in our culture today. Um, our culture has so radically departed from God's law in this regard. And it's not just our culture. There's so much confusion in the church. I mean, it's just this past two weeks, these past two weeks, that um, the, the Church of England uh, has voted, their bishops have voted to bless same-sex unions. Now that is a, you need to understand, that is a radical departure from Orthodox Christianity. Um, and that decision is, is invariably going to lead to a split in the Anglican Church. Not only in the Anglican Church, I mean, even in um, a broad evangelical world, uh, closer to home, uh, there, are, there are very subtle moves um, to... Uh, away from the biblical position to embrace, especially the, the LGBT um, uh, stuff. So the reality is we've been and we are being greatly influenced by the spirit of our age here. I mean, you understand, it's, it's insidious. It's the, these, the message, the, pro, the, the, the pro-LGBT agenda, the, pro, uh, the, the, the culture's understanding of, of sexual values are being thrown at us everywhere we, we look. It's the, we are being discipled through you know, media like Netflix, through all the films we watch, through this miniseries. We are being desensitized to a biblical understanding of, of sexuality through what we're seeing every day. And as believers, we need to stand firm on the Word of God because this is, it, this is a big one. Um, this can shipwreck one's faith. So the conventional wisdom today, even those of us in the church, is, is that if you really love someone, well, that's your business. Who are we to judge? Because the argument is, well, if, how can loving someone possibly be wrong? And surely to call out those who commit sexual sin is, is an unloving thing to do. It is a hateful thing to do. It is an unchristlike thing thing to do. So let's have a closer look at, at these two terms. First, we're looking at sexually immoral. The Greek word is pornois, where you get the word pornography from. And this is an umbrella term. This, this term um, includes, it describes all sexual acts prohibited by scripture. And those are summed up in the sexual codes in the law of Moses from um, prostitution Fornication, okay, it's not a word that our culture likes to use anymore. And what is fornication? Fornication describes any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether it's a casual hookup to um, habitual sexual relationship out of the marriage covenant. Um, Porneia also includes adultery, rape, homosexuality, incest, 
and bestiality. And then Jesus comes along. Now, there are a lot of, you know, the progressive Christians say, oh, no, no, but, but, you know, Jesus, you know, declared all these things um, not to be sins anymore. Well, well, that's just simply not <laughs> um, looking at the data of Scripture because Jesus actually raised the bar. And see, even if you look at a, a woman lustfully, you have essentially committed adultery with your heart. Yeah, Jesus upholds the law of Moses. We need to understand that. You cannot pit the Old and New Testaments against each other and argue that they, um, yeah, there's a contradiction between them. Absolutely not. So the question is, well, why does the Bible forbid these sexual activities? And the reason is that God's design for sex is within the marriage covenant. I mean, God created sex. It's good. And God, but he created for a specific purpose, and that purpose is for marriage. So God has a high view of marriage. And so the, the, he has designed sex in order to bring husband and wife closer as a one flesh union in order to strengthen and bless marriage and for marriages to bear fruit, which, you know, are, are children. So sex outside of this covenant only brings destruction and heartache. And that's why the marriage bed is to kept, be kept holy and undefiled, meaning that lawful sex is, is to be exclusively between husband and wife. And that's why Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So that brings us to the next phrase that's used to describe breaking the seventh commandment, and that is men who practice homosexuality. So the Greek word that's used here is arsenokoitais. And a lot of commentators believe that Paul actually invented this word by using two Greek words that are used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Leviticus 18 and 20 when um, the Old Testament talks about homosexuality. And so these two Greek words, the first one is arsen, which means it was male, and koites, which is bed. So it literally men who bed one another, okay, which is a euphemism for men who have sex with men. Sorry to be crude, but that's just what the word means. And we need to be straight here and the, the, the face of a culture which is wanting to desensitize us to all this stuff and, and, and airbrush this over. Now, many progressive Christians will argue that when Paul talks about homosexuality, um, he is referring only to pederastry. And that is, was practiced in the Greco-Roman world. And that was older men who sexually abused boys. And so they say no, that's only what Paul is, is going against. And they argue that consensual, consensual homosexual relations are not condemned um, by, by Scripture. Now, we just look at this text and we say, that, well, that's absolutely false. And that's in being intentionally um, deceptive. Because this Greek word is evidence of that. Um, it, the Greek word men bedding men, that is... It, 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 it refers directly to consensual homosexual activity. 
And moreover, not just this verse here, but I mean the, the consistent teaching of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, is that homosexuality is condemned. And it's condemned in the strongest terms. Brothers and sisters, there are degrees of sin. You need to understand that. Paul, called himself the, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. Okay? There, there are degrees of sin. Homosexuality is described in Leviticus 18.22 as an abomination. That is a very strong word. It's described in Romans 1.26 as dishonorable. And what Romans 1 shows us is, is that it's, the act is contrary to nature. It's contrary to God's design for humans. It's contrary to, to, to the cosmology, the way in which God has ordered the world. Because God created humans as, as male and female in order to complement each other, to, to be together. So then when you put a man and a man together and a woman and a woman together, that is, is so in your face, contrary to design, to, God, to God's design for the human race. It's an affront. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an obvious affront to, um, to God himself. And, and the evidence of, of the, the truth that um, these relationships are unnatural is that, well, they bear no fruit. Hey, you can't have children through those relationships. They, they are unnatural. They are perversion of God's design for sex. And Romans 1 makes the link between homosexuality and a deep-seated rejection to God. And in fact, this behavior, it really marks out those in a vivid way who are strangers to the gospel. These things are not compatible with the gospel. No matter how people try to spin it and twist scripture, they are absolutely incompatible. Now, the reality is that all sexual sin is extremely grave and and an affront to the Lord in a way that other sins aren't. Because God marks out sexual sin as a sin against our own bodies in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. And then it goes on to say in the same text that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so what it is then is is sexual sin is a vivid example of idolatry. That we defile ourselves by giving ourselves over to, to a false God. Instead of honoring God with our bodies. And this is why sexual sin is, is so grievous. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, provides an extremely sobering warning to those who make a practice of sexual immorality and, and homosexuality. And it says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8 says that those who disregard God's commands for sexual purity disregard not man, but God himself. Now, brothers and sisters, these scriptures should make you fear and tremble. They should keep us in fear and humility before the Lord. That is the point of the law. To wake us up. 
to literally put the fear of God in us in order to drive us far away from sin and to restrain sin in our lives. Because what the law does is that the law confronts us with God's holy and righteous character. And in the light of that exposes just how much we fall short. Now the rest of verse 10 continues to the remainder of the Ten Commandments. Enslavers, it's the, you know, those who break the Eighth Commandment don't steal. Those who steal people, kidnappers. Liars, the Ninth Commandment, those who obstruct the ends of justice, bearing a false witness. And anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So then it just lumps all the rest of sin into, into that. And so we see here is that we only know that these behaviors are sinful because of God's law. So that's why Paul lays down the law. He lays down the Ten Commandments as well. In the light of that, now you can see what behavior is sinful. Here it is. The thing is, the purpose of God's law is not just to expose sin. That's certainly the first use of the law. Another use of the law is that the law is also our guide to righteous living. And here we see the link between our beliefs and our actions. Because the reality is that we we live out what we truly believe. If we truly hold to sound doctrine, well, that means that we will live our lives in agreement with God's law. So the opposite is true as well. If we have believed false teaching, well, then is which invariably includes some misuse of God's law. That is then going to lead to, to sinful behavior. So this is why it is so important for us to, to root ourselves in sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, as verse 11 says. So Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your words in my heart that I may not sin against you. So the more that we are established in God's word, the more we are established in sound teaching, the more the Holy Spirit transforms and and renews our minds and through that causes us to live lives in obedience to, to God's law. Do you want to know how to glorify God and enjoy him? Do you want to know how to live life in the best possible way and experience life abundantly and joyfully with healthy and loving relationships the way God intended. Well, then live in obedience to God's law. God's law shows us the way to the path of life. And so why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so this links us back to verse 5, which we saw earlier that, earlier, that the goal of our faith is love. And the way that we express perfect love to God and perfect love to our neighbor is to live in obedience to God's law as love fulfills the law. So wrapping this all up. The reality is that there is not one of us sitting here this morning, that is not a lawbreaker. Okay, our sins, and Paul has done that. He, he's, he's exposed our sins by laying upon us the Ten Commandments. 
And maybe that's made you shrink away and feel exposed. And Well, that's the point of it. Okay, we all, the law makes us feel guilty before God. And God would be just to condemn us all to death. As we know, Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty for sins is death. Well, then are we left in a dwang? Are we left in despair? How do we... What are we to do? Well, we are left in despair. Because here we realize that none of us are just on our own. We, we, we need help. And that's the other, what the law does is that it shows us that we need a savior. That we need somebody to save us from our sins. Someone who himself is just. Someone who himself has obeyed the law where we haven't. And someone who will, has paid for our sins where we are unable to do so ourselves. And thankfully, God has provided just the right man, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man. And only he has perfectly obeyed the law. Only he is just in himself, living the righteous life we, we, we couldn't live. And though he was sinless and undeserving of death, Jesus endured the punishment for sins that we deserve, which was death on a cross. But because God raised him from the dead and vindicated him, if we trust in him, he forgives us our sins. He covers our guilt and shame. He clothes us in a righteousness that is not of ourselves. And through that, he reconciles us to our Father. Now, brothers and sisters, you would have heard those sober warnings in scripture that those who continue in the practice of sins will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. That's a big deal. It's a sober warning. And in the light of that, repent. <laughs> Turn away from your sins and receive the abundant gift of grace, the grace of God, of Christ himself. And cling to him. He alone washes the vilest of sinners and restores the most rebellious of children. There is no sin so heinous that the Lord will not forgive. And trusting him, he also fills us with his spirit and, and seals us for eternal life. So brothers and sisters, trust, trust in Christ and in the light of his grace and, and live for his glory and, and joyful obedience to his name. Amen. Amen.